It's often said that the United States government spends money like drunken sailors. It's really not that accurate, considering drunken sailors stop spending when the money runs out. In this episode of Americans for Prosperity's Insight to Action, Adam Millsap, the Senior Fellow for Economic Opportunity Issues at Stand Together and the Charles Koch Institute, discusses America's spending problem, how to solve it, and what might happen if we don't get it under control. Here we go. Adam, it's great to have you on the podcast again. I thank you for being here. We're going to talk about spending today. Uh, and uh, one thing that I have heard already is as the the organization, as the community comes back and starts taking positions on spending, I have heard, oh, well, that's convenient that we're suddenly concerned about spending as soon as a Democrat's in the White House. Where have you been the last four years? How do you respond to somebody who says that to you? Yeah, I mean, the Stand Together community has been pushing back on out-of-control government spending um, much much longer than just, you know, recently. You know, under the Bush administration, a W under Obama, you know, then under Trump, and now with Biden being the new president, I mean, spending's been an issue, you know, going back 20, 30 years. So I think that this is not just something new that's going to be happening under Biden, but we were pushing back against out-of-control spending under Trump as well. There's a long argument out there right now. Uh, we've seen it. I know Reagan dealt with it, uh, that we don't have a spending problem. We have a taxing problem. We just don't tax enough. We don't, we don't, uh, we don't eat the rich. We don't go after the rich. We do, we just don't tax enough. It isn't a spending problem. It's a taxing problem. And again, it's a common argument that, that has been persistent. How do you respond to something like that? I just think that's, that's flat out wrong. You know, the America, Federally, we don't tax as much as a lot of other developed countries. When you look at the OECD average, um, America's federal tax revenues aren't as high. But when you add up all taxes at all levels, state, local, and federal, America's revenue that they bring in through taxation is not much different than other countries. So it's not really a revenue problem. It's really a spending problem. I mean, just the Trump administration, for example, um, under Obama, spending was about three and a half trillion dollars a year was the government's budget for the la- from about 20, I think it's like 2012 to through 2016. And then since then, it's gone up to four and a half trillion. That was before COVID um, and all of the stimulus and relief payments that went out with COVID. So, like I said, just in the last four years, it's gone up by almost a trillion dollars a year. So it's de- I mean, we, we shouldn't expect tax revenue to go up that high that quickly. Right. So it's, it's definitely a spending issue. So where is the uh, the biggest problem? That you see in spending right now, when we when we look at the overall the overall picture, what causes you the most concern? It's really the entitlement spending. So the Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, a lot of the other social programs, SNAP, you know, food stamps, um, the spending that can't be lowered through the typical budget process. That's where a lot of the runaway spending is. People get really worked up about things like foreign aid. Why are we sending $100 million to this country to do a study on, you know, some rare fish or something like that? And that's certainly an issue. There's certainly ways that we can cut on the discretionary side. But that's really just a drop in the bucket when we think about how large the entitlement spending is. So entitlement spending makes up like 60, six, between 60 and 65 percent of government spending, so almost two thirds of the federal budget, whereas discretionary spending then is only about 
30%. So like I said, you really need to do something about that 65% to get it under control in order to make a lot of headway. Help me understand what you mean by discretionary and non-discretionary spending. Yeah, so the discretionary spending is like Department of Defense, how much money goes to the Department of Education or the Department of Labor, kind of all of the other things that the government does, highways, how much should they spend on national parks? All of those things are discretionary. They can change those things through the normal budget process. For example, one year they might say the DOD, the Department of Defense gets $800 billion, and then the next year they decide to only give them $750 billion or $700 billion, right? They can move that number around. Entitlement spending, Social Security, they can't move that number around. Um, through the budget process. They need to be legislation. Um, as people retire, and right now the baby boomers are retiring, um, you know, a lot more of them. So that's why a lot of the Social Security and the Medicare spending is being driven up. As those people retire, they've already been promised benefits. And the federal government is obligated to meet those, to, to provide those benefits. So they can't just say, oh, we're going to cut Social Security spending by 10% this year because we don't have the money. They can't do that through like the budget process. Now, they could pass legislation to reform the Social Security formulas and how the benefits are paid out and how money is brought in. But they can't just say, hey, this year we're going to cut Social Security spending by 5%. So they've actually set up legislation that prohibits people from tinkering with that side of the budget. And it would require further legislation to allow adjustments to be made. And and therefore, it, it isn't it isn't so much that they can't change it. It's just that there are huge hurdles that would be required to be to pass in order to change that. And yeah, there's not a lot of political capital or interest in overcoming those hurdles. Exactly. Exactly. It would have to get through. And it's not even something like people think about reconciliation, like you can pass things with only 51 votes. That's how Obama, you know, the Obamacare, the ACA got through. That's how the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act from President Trump got through. But Social Security legislation wouldn't be able to just go through reconciliation. It would need to go through the normal legislative process. And that has a filibuster of 60 votes. So you have to get 60 people on board. So like you said, there's just a lot more legislative hurdles. You need a lot more of a consensus to really make headway on reforming the entitlement side of the federal budget. And right now, there doesn't seem to be a lot of interest in coming to a consensus or in coming to any sort of bipartisan solution. And so that makes it even more difficult uh, with the way it is right now. Any other any other big concerns of yours outside of uh, entitlements and non-discretionary spending when it comes to spending? Yeah, I think one concern, you know, is also thinking about interest on the debt. So that's another big payment that the federal government makes. They, you know, we borrow money every year. We run deficits. Our deficits are right now, um, you know, we're running in like a one over a trillion dollars a year for the next 10 years is what the CBO projects. Um, so there's trillion dollar deficits we have to borrow in order to get that money. Um, and then we owe interest on that. So right now, interest payments on the debt, there's a there's a chance that, if, you know, if interest rates go up, those payments are going to explode. Um, and that's really driving a lot of the growth in the debt going forward as well. So I think that that's something else we need to be concerned about on the spending side is the more we borrow, the more the higher the interest payments are. And there's a chance that, you know, even if interest rates only go up by a percentage point or so, that those payments on the debt become really big and they start crowding out a lot of other things the government spends money on. This triggered the uh, <clears throat> the idea of the modern monetary theory, the idea that this isn't that big a deal, Adam, because this is just money we, we owe ourselves. How do, <laughs> you know, how, do you, how do you counter that argument? Yeah, so the modern monetary theory, from what I understand, the, the, the crux of the idea is that countries that issue their own currency can't default. 
So you can always print money to pay off whatever debt you have. And that's in theory, that's true. I mean, in principle, that is true. Now, the fear, though, is that that people always push back on is that that would lead to inflation. If you just print a bunch of money to pay back debts, for example, then those dollars are going to be worth less. And that is like the definition of inflation. Prices going up, dollar being worth having less purchasing power than it had previously. The modern monetary theorists think that they could control the inflation side on the tax side. So the idea is that you would pay a lot of, you would print a lot of money to pay off any debts, and then you would use tax policy to pull that money back out of the economy so that it didn't lead to inflation. So it's a very delicate uh, game that they're trying to play via printing money and then using taxes to claw it back out of the economy so it doesn't lead to inflation. Um, there's a lot of pushback on that. Their whole theory in general doesn't make a lot of sense when you really dive into it. So I don't put a lot of stock or credibility in the whole idea of, of MMT. And most economists that I talk to and that I read don't either. Even Paul Krugman, who's not, who's not someone that I agree with on a lot of things, is very skeptical of modern monetary theory. Has that ever been tried in history? I mean, there's been hyperinflation in history. People have certainly printed a lot of money to pay back the debt. I don't know that anyone has ever had this idea that somehow they're trying to use tax policy to make sure that it doesn't lead to inflation. But anywhere where printing money to get out of the debt has been tried, it's led to hyperinflation and destroyed economies. It sounds like there are people out there who are once again falling victim to the to the fatal conceit. This idea that they've they've got the knowledge necessary to dial in all the dials to the perfect place and flip the right switches, and they're just going to plan everything across the country exactly as it's needed and solve all the problems. Yes, I think MMT definitely suffers from that problem. There's a lot of faith in the experts to get these dials exactly right in order to pull it off, and I don't think um, history or experience the way we the way we view the world theory in theory that that's a very good plan. So what, what, how would you define the stand-together vision then for uh, a spending policy or a spending program on the federal, federal level? I, I, I don't know if we want to talk about state, county, or local governments, but when we talk about on, on, a, on a very federal level, what is the, the vision of a spending plan that would remove barriers, not erect them, and help foster in a society of mutual benefit? Yeah. So to stand together, you know, we'd like to create a world where people can self-actualize, engage in voluntary exchange, create mutual benefit for one another. And there's some role for government, but that role is much smaller than the role that the government is currently playing. Um, so we think there's some role for, for taxes and the fund core functions of government at the federal level. You can think of things like national defense, um, maybe some basic. Maybe there's room for the federal government to do something basic on the social safety net side. Um, maybe some infrastructure that's controlled by the federal government. Although, again, state and local governments control most of the infrastructure in the country and are responsible for most of the infrastructure, not the federal government. So there are some there is some role for the federal government, but it's much larger, much larger than it should be right now. And so we think of how can we make sure that the each layer of government is within its proper role in raising the money it needs to perform those functions but not doing things that are outside what it should be doing that infringe on the other aspects of society, right? Communities, business, and, and education. In order to get there, I mean, we, we, were good, we, would have to, we would have to start building up the muscles that have atrophied in the other key institutions of society, wouldn't we? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's definitely a lot of crowd out that's happened through this kind of government spending, right? Um, they're doing a lot of things that they traditionally hadn't done, you know, 100 years ago, 75 years ago, when civil society was much stronger. And 
So any kind of pullback would require some of these other key institutions to step up. And that's going to take some time. And to your point, strengthening some muscles, right, in order to get them to be able to fill that role. There is a a common, uh, I, I call it an internal barrier. And internal barriers are these things that are, that are unique to the individual. Um, I can't break your internal barriers, Adam. Uh, that's something you're going to have to do. I see this, <clears throat> this excuse me, this internal barrier, uh, this idea that if government doesn't do it, it won't get done. And I, I define it as an internal barrier because when people think that, then they don't take action. They say, well, there's no reason for us to do this. The government's doing it. And if government doesn't do it, then it simply can't get done. And that mental model, that internal barrier is one of the key things that, that keeps these other key institutions from taking action. And mm-hmm. it's, it's, yeah, I think that's it's, true. It's like you said, it's a delicate balance because if, 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 for example, we looked at entitlement spending and I'm not saying that, that this is what we're advocating for, but if tomorrow they just cut off all Medicare and Medicaid, this, all that spending is just gone from the federal level. The other key institutions in society, and I include the state governments, they are woefully unprepared to deal with something like that. So when we, we talk about this mm-hmm. vision, how do, I don't know, is there, do you have a, an idea of what the plan would be like to, to get to where we want to go? I think you brought up a good point. I mean, it'd be great to see the states reassert some of their authority. You know, the, the country was originally founded on this idea of federalism, that whatever wasn't explicitly granted in the Constitution to the federal government would belong as a priority, as a role of the state governments. And I think the state governments over time have just delegated too much of their their authority and their um, functions to the federal government. So to your point, right, I mean, if Social Security just went away tomorrow, Medicare went away tomorrow, there's other ways um, to provide those benefits that people are relying on, either through the private sector. There's a lot of things that people used to do, mutual aid societies and all this kind of stuff at, commu- at the community's level. But there's also opportunities for local governments and state governments to set up to set up programs, right? And we would get more experimentation, have a better sense of what works and what doesn't work, rather than one top-down federal solution that has only led us to this point right now where we're at, where the entitlement spending is is getting out of control, and we don't really have a good plan for getting it under control. One of the most insightful books on this topic, this idea of, of if government doesn't do it, there's, there's two of them. One is Reclaiming the American Dream, which I recommend that everyone reads. The second one that I'd recommend everyone reads is something called From Mutual Aid to the Welfare State. And this really describes how things used to be where we had communities. And I, when I say communities, understand, I don't mean that I'm talking about this local town. I'm talking about groups of people or small organizations, what Edmund Burke would call little platoons, that, that were taking care of one another and handling these issues and were eventually crowded out as this mental model of if government doesn't do it, it won't get done, takes over. You can see how these solutions would come to fruition and how they could replace a lot of what's being done rather inefficiently uh, by government now. And I think of, of the old Elks Lodges and the old fraternal organizations that used to take care of one another. Anyway, it's a great read, especially when we're talking about how these other key institutions have to step up. They, we have to recognize the, the power and influence they could have to solve a lot of the problems that we look to government to solve right now. What, I, what I'd like to do next is really look at spending through the four mutually reinforcing principles. So could you tell me first how the spending right now is violating the idea of equal rights and how the community's vision 
would respect the principle of equal rights? Yeah, sure. So um, spending and equal rights, I mean, one of the first things that comes to mind is this idea of subsidies, right? So governments at all levels, not just the federal government, but state and local governments, right? They give out special tax incentives to certain industries and certain companies. And doing that gives those industries and those companies a, a competitive advantage over the other others and aren't getting those benefits. So that is inherently not treating everyone equally, right? Some businesses and industries are getting favors and some aren't. So, and this is on both sides, right? Each each political party has their own favorite industries and favorite companies. You might think of like Solyndra under the Obama administration with the solar panel company that defaulted on their $500 million loan. So maybe it's green energy, you know, on the on the left, but then on the right, you know, it might be like tech or it might be, you know, some other some other industry that they, they can create jobs, manufacturing, right? We need to bring manufacturing back to the U.S. This was Trump's big pet project. So how can we incentivize GM or somebody to open up a plant in America? So both sides have their own favorite industries. But doing that, favoring some companies over others is also favoring some people over others, the employees and the uh, management and the, and the consumers of those firms at the expense of other firms and aren't getting those benefits. So Government spending, when it tilts the playing field like that, is inherently not treating everyone equal. Um, this also shows up in government contracts, right? When governments award contracts, if they're not awarding those contracts based on who provides the best value to the taxpayer, so it's not just the lowest price, but it's who gives, who's going to get the job done in the way that's in the way that's needed, you know, at at a, at a low price, right? So you want the value. You want to think of both sides of that. I think too often sometimes we just fault and say hey, we want it to be the cheapest, but that's not true. We want it to be cheap and good. So. If the government is awarding those contracts based on something other than that, that, again, is also not treating people equally. What about the idea that Frederick Bastiat put forward of, of legal plunder, where we have these <clears throat> these government actions that are taking from one group and giving to another? Does, is, is that a form of, of a violation of, of equal rights? Absolutely. So, I mean, you can probably have the same thing on the tax side as on the spending side, right? Certain taxes only apply to certain industries. And I don't even know all the myriad levies and fees state and local governments and federal government might be levying on certain industries. But I imagine that there's some industries that pay some taxes and other industries that don't. And whether that's actually direct taxes or it's like industries, certain industries and certain companies can deduct certain things from their from their tax liabilities that other industries can't because you've got these tax extenders that were even part of the TCJA, like racehorses, where you can deduct that, right? So there's all kinds of these weird little things that government does that, again, inherently treat some firms differently than others, which is, again, a violation of the idea of equal rights that we that we uh, support. When it comes to mutual benefit, how does uh, how does our spending vision relate to that? Yeah. So this this has to do with the proper role of government. Right. Like I said, there are certain things that government can spend money on. Um, you know, we think of like public goods in the economic sense. Um, things like I said, national defense, a legal system, right? We want a functioning legal system with courts and enforcement agencies to maintain the rule of law and, and social order. So those things are kind of provide benefits to everyone. So there's some government spending that does enable and enhance the ability for us to provide mutual benefit to one another. But at the same time, when the government's spending money on, like I said, on these favorite industries and stuff like that, that's infringing on our ability to create mutual benefit from one another. It's, it's distorting the economy. So that's when the government's outside its proper role and instead favoring some of its constituents over others. There's also un, un, really unseen forms of, of the violation of this. That One thing that, uh, that I point to often when it comes to this, this idea of mutual benefit when it comes to spending is the idea of, of toxic charity in the form of foreign aid. You know, a lot of people don't realize how damaging 
foreign aid actually can be to an uh, you know another organization or another country. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. Um, you know, Chris Coyne, he's an economist at George Mason University. He's written a lot on these kind of topics about foreign aid. And William Easterly, who is an economist at NYU, he has a book called The Tyranny of Experts and the White Man's Burden. So again, I recommend those to your listeners. Um, good books to show the downside of foreign aid and how too often we allow our middle class, our, our, our America's a very rich country, right? And we allow our preferences for how we think the world should work to influence the kind of projects and programs we support in other countries, even if those aren't the right programs and projects for those particular countries, right? We're not considering the local context and the local knowledge that those people have. So yes, foreign aid can violate, can violate other countries' ability to create a system of mutual benefit. And I, I also, we've talked about Easterly's book, The Tyranny of Experts. It's a fantastic read. And it really goes into the idea that when you bring these experts in, uh, they often just care about results. They don't so much care about equal rights. And then uh, mm-hmm. so you see pretty stark violations of-, of And not even good results. No, no. Not even good results. Like they, don't, they don't care about the results in the sense like, oh, are people finding more jobs or, oh, are incomes going up? They care about results in like, oh, we- we, we started this business or we handed out, you know, a thousand tractors, like really like, you know, mundane kind of results. <laughs> mm-hmm. And and you see that when you see these actions go into place, not only I, I don't want to make it exclusive about foreign aid. When you see actions taken in the United States that violate equal rights, that go against mutual benefit, that has a profound impact on openness because we do not see the sharing of ideas. We don't we don't see the sharing of of um materials we see a lack of transparency and openness and that openness really stifles innovation because if if you're going into a situation and the government is doing something that makes your business impossible if the you know if if the government is supplying an abundance of grain it makes it kind of hard to be a farmer and ask people to pay for your stuff because they're getting mm-hmm. it from for free over here so so spending when it does not respect equal rights, when it does not allow for a mutual benefit, can you go into some ways that it just really impacts the ability for openness to to thrive? Absolutely. Um, and also, again, this comes back to how government spending, how they award dollars, right? I mean, the government spends a lot of money on a lot of stuff, and they can use that spending power to influence the way people think about the world, right? If you, what we wouldn't want to see, like you see in a lot of other countries that are a lot more crony, you know, places like China, for example, right? Where government contracts are awarded to people who support certain political positions, right? So certain political parties. Um, And if you don't toe the party line, or if you don't believe in the right things, then you're going to be left out, right? You're going to get extra taxes levied on your industry or your company. Um, You're going to find it hard to get permits. You know, you're going to find it difficult to win any of those government contracts to build the new bridge. And so uh, luckily, I don't think that's a huge problem in the U.S. yet, but that's a way that government spending can kind of clamp down on particular ideas and make society less open. I mean, you could see something in the U.S. like it would be terrible if the government started awarding contracts to people who, you know, thought abortion should be legal or not legal. Right. So your particular views on abortion impacted your ability to start a business. That would be that would be bad. Um, or if people only got contracts if you were a Democrat when the Democrats were in charge and all the government contracts were, were awarded to Republican firms when Republicans were in charge. That would also be bad. So we want the government in its spending to remain viewpoint neutral and, again, only focus on providing value to the taxpayer 
not on tilting the social playing field one way or another through its ability to, you know, raise taxes and then put those taxes back out into the economy through its spending power. When we look at spending and self-actualization, it's kind of difficult. I, I don't know. Maybe maybe it isn't for you. I mean, you <laughs> you you live and breathe this stuff. But when I look, when when a lot of people look at spending, they might think, I don't see how that stifles self actualization. How how does it? I just think you brought up a good point with your grain example. Um, you know, when the government spends money on legitimate functions, like I said, you know, rule like a, like a court system, a legal system, national defense, and, and the kind of things that we expect government to do, and maybe government can do best, it's fostering a society that enables mutual benefit and self-actualization, right? But it can also crowd out things, as you brought up before, with civil society. If the government starts up its own broadband network, so say the local government starts up its own broadband network in some city, well, that's going to interfere with a private sector company from being able to start its broadband network, right? It's going to now have to compete with the government with unlimited resources via its taxing power. So it's preventing the person who wants to provide broadband in a private setting in the private market from self-actualizing. So if the government, to your point about the grain, if the government's dumping a lot of grain onto the market, then the farmer is now trying to compete with this huge government entity. And it's very difficult to self-actualize when you're competing with a government, especially a government as large as the U.S. federal government, that can harness all of those resources. So we don't want the government to try to provide goods and services that other institutions can provide. And when it does that, it's necessarily going to nudge the private actors out of the way and prevent their their self-actualization from occurring. Well, how would you react to someone who says that this government spending is actually allowing for self-actualization? Because I've heard the argument made that if we have a government-run healthcare system, then people will not be locked into their jobs because they get their health insurance through their, their employer, and therefore they'd be able to pursue careers that they find fulfilling. They'd be able to become painters or poets or, or do what they want because they have this, this ability to, to seek their own fulfillment. Yeah, I mean, I would argue that that might help some people self again, that might help some people self actualize, right? The people who benefit from from the government provided insurance. And again, I think a lot of people wouldn't benefit, um, not only because mainly because I think the quality would be much poorer. And I don't I'm not sure people have really realized that yet. We can go read about the NHS some other time. But again, you're nudging those private providers out of the way. You're preventing those other medical professionals from self-actualizing. So again, the government has a role of, of creating an orderly, of maintaining an orderly society through, like I said, the legal system and things like that, and enabling people to self-actualize. But it shouldn't be trying to nudge its, you know, weasel its way into particular industries and nudge those other providers out of the way and prevent them from providing a better product and a better service. So I just, I'm just not very sympathetic to that argument. And I, again, I also don't think it's within the proper role of government to become a kind of a jobs program to enable people to self-actualize, right? People have their own version of what the good life is, and they should be free to pursue that. And the more government gets involved, the more it limits what, the, what that version of the good life can be. It's important to remember that, again, I quote Bastia and Thomas Sowell repeatedly on this podcast because so often what they taught relates to what we talk about. And Bastia said, there, you know, whenever there's an action, whenever there's a policy, there are two sets of consequences, those that are seen and those that are unseen. So when you have a policy that goes out and creates something that allows for some to perhaps self-actualize, you have to ask yourself, how is it impacting others? You have to look 
look past step one. You have to look at the unseen. That's that which isn't talk, talked about very often. And and Thomas yeah, Sowell would also argue that there there is no solution. You are not going to find a solution to this issue. You are going to find a set of trade-offs. And the key thing is to pick the set of trade-offs that is least damaging and most beneficial. And understand that you you will not find a policy that everybody benefits from unless it's something like – I can't even say that. If you say – what we're going to do is have a government that respects rights and secures them. I think that's that's probably the best way to go with the best set of trade-offs. But it's, it's that recognition that there are no solutions. There are only trade-offs. Yeah, I think it's important thing to remember. That's a great point. I mean, Thomas Old is spot on when he said that. And I think that's something that all of uh, all of your listeners and all of us within the Stand Together community should keep in, a, in, in the forefront of our minds whenever we're thinking about policy. Um, that there are no solutions. There are only trade-offs. And... I think also we have a particular worldview, right, where we think there's a role of government that it shouldn't infringe on, even if in some utilitarian sense, you might say, oh, the costs are greater than the benefits, right? But there's a there's a long term. Not, it's not only that it's the unseen and it's the seen and unseen consequences of the immediate term, but also what might happen 50 years down the road? What might happen 100 years down the road? And so even if something looks like it solves the, the utilitarian calculus in the present, what does it mean to give government that power or allow them to do that, take that action? What does that mean a hundred years down the road? What kind of, what kind of door have we opened and might we come to regret opening that door, you know, generations down the line. So I think it's always re to remember to keep that long-term, that long time horizon in mind as well. Well, now you're just channeling Henry Hazlitt, <laughs> you know, now, <laughs> now you're just saying that and, and, and you're spot on. You can't look at what happens to a, a particular group at a fixed or set point in time. You have to look at the impact of all groups over an extended period of time. Exactly. Well, is there anything about spending that you want to, that we need to talk about that we haven't touched on yet? I think this has been great. I mean, I just like to remind your listeners, you know, that spending is definitely a problem and it's something that we should all be concerned about. Um, getting it under control is, is a top priority of the, of the standing together community. Um, and again, mostly, we mostly think about it at the federal level, but there's also a lot of things that state and local governments spend money on that aren't needed or are outside the proper scope of what those governments should be doing. And there might be better institutions that are, uh, better able to solve those problems without kicking it up to the government. So yeah, just, just always keep your eye on these kind of things. And, um, it's been, it's been great chatting with you. Adam Millsap is the Senior Fellow for Economic Opportunity Issues at Stand Together and the Charles Koch Institute. Once again, we thank him for taking the time to talk with us about America's spending problem. For Americans for Prosperity, I'm Dwayne Lester, and this has been Insight to Action.